Today's episode is sponsored by Ethnoanalytics. Struggling with your experience design strategy? Worrying about how best to implement your strategy to get buy-in? Trying to figure out how to align your customer experience and employee experience, as well as all your other experience channels? Do you have qualitative data collection and analysis needs? Contact me at GaryDavid at ethno-analytics.com or visit our website ethno-analytics.com to find out how to make integrated design and experience alignment possible. Now on with the show. Welcome back to Experience by Design Podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David. I hope that everyone is managing the kickoff to the holiday season, which just started. Regardless of what holiday you celebrate or whether you celebrate at all, the holiday season is impossible to avoid. It's all around us. In that way, we're all sharing this moment at the same time having the same or similar experience of commercialism, stress, hopefully hopefully mixed in with some gratitude and togetherness, hopefully. In today's episode, I keep thinking back, oddly enough, to eighth grade. I had just transferred to a Catholic school to play football back when I was one of the bigger kids in my grade before everyone else outgrew me, and in the process ended up with a girlfriend named Dawn. Being a small Catholic school, everyone knew everyone else, and many of my classmates had gone to school together since first grade. Being on the football team, and even being one of the captains, back when I was bigger than everyone else, helped ease my way into the group. And I was coming from a public school, had gone to public school all my life, immersed into this small little ecosystem of friends and connectedness, and I was the outsider, maybe the, the exotic other who was unfamiliar to everybody. I was also an aficionado of classic rock. And I have to say that this taste was not shared by most of my 8th grade compatriots. One day, I think it was science class, I was sitting at a table with Don and others. It was one of those arrangements where there were four or five or six of us all sitting together in kind of like this rectangle where all those horrible desks were pushed together. And as I was not paying attention to what was going on in science class, I wrote on my notebook the words, are you experienced? And I didn't think much about it at the time. Unbeknownst to me, this scribbling caused a lot of consternation among Dawn and her gang of girlfriends. A little time later, one of the gang was dispatched as an emissary to inquire to me as to the exact meaning of the phrase, are you experienced? What, you know, why did I write this down? What did I mean by it? What was I asking? Apparently, there was this widely held belief that the writing was directed at Don, the public school kid asking about the range of Don's previous romantic involvements and their outcomes, or, in other words, whether or not Don was experienced. I looked at the emissary and I said, it's the title of a Jimi Hendrix song. Why? Oh, was her response. And the emissary returned to her group, to her nation, to her tribe, to deliver the news that I was, in fact, not inquiring about Dawn's previous romantic experiences or what she had engaged in with past boyfriends. I was just, in fact, referring to a Jimi Hendrix album. The point here is not to talk about my relationship with Dawn, which did not last beyond eighth grade. and I don't think it even lasted through eighth grade. The point here is that it can be tricky to have a thing such as a shared experience. The idea of shared experiences was also on my mind during a recent Customer Experience Professional Association event that I attended last week. It was a nice little end of the year social affair where folks from around the Boston chapter came together to just hang out and chat. There was no agenda, there was no speaker, it was just an opportunity for everyone to get together and mingle. I ended up chatting with a very nice lady that I had not met before who is working in a CX and UX capacity at a bank. And we ended up chatting for a long time. 
And honestly, this is my issue, the longer I talk to somebody, the more uncomfortable I usually get. I keep imagining that the person feels trapped, bored, otherwise uninterested, and that I am generally or genuinely or generally, generally ruining the person's night. I kept asking the person I was talking to if she wanted to escape to talk to other people, which, you know, quite frankly, is an awkward thing to ask somebody you're talking to whether or not they're bored with you and want to leave. Uh, obviously, she said no. But was she just saying that because I asked? Was she just being nice? Was I, in fact, ruining her night? And I was sure I was ruining her night. I was sure I was boring her to death. I was sure she did not want to talk to me anymore. And that even though I was having a lovely time just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, was she having the same experience? Was she engaged in the same moment that I was? We're, we were both engaged in a conversation, but what was her perception of that interaction? And if you think to definitions of customer experience, you know, it's this idea of the perception that people have with the interactions of a company's, you know, goods and services and products and all those touch points in between. What was her perception of that interaction? I knew what mine was. How did I know what hers was? Even though I basically gave her uh, an MPS uh, survey and in the moment and asked her on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely was she to recommend this conversation to her friends and family? I didn't quite do that, but I was trying to gauge or check her impressions. And measuring perceptions can be a tricky thing, obviously, because how do we really know what someone's experiences are? To tackle these questions, today's guest on Experience by Design is Professor of Philosophy and, as we will discover, sometimes accountant, Axel Seaman. I have had the pleasure of working with Axel for some time now. He's a professor at Bentley University, where I'm a professor, and I've seen him around. We've been in meetings together, but quite frankly, I never quite knew what Axel did and what he talked about. I always knew that it, whatever Axel did, it was involved deep thinking stuff because he usually looks deep in thought. He's one of those faculty members that you imagine that when he's walking across the campus, you see him and you think, wow, he's really thinking about deep stuff right now. I better not say anything to him. Uh, he, he looks like a philosopher. He talks like a philosopher. He is, in fact, a philosopher. So he embodies those characteristics quite nicely, and this is not meant to be a criticism at all. It's meant to be, uh, I'm always impressed by looking at him and his philosophical nature. It turns out that, amongst other things, he works on how, or whether, people have shared experiences. He recently published a book called The Shared World by MIT Press. MIT is that university close by Bentley that you might have heard of. And in the overview of the book, it's described as arguing, quote, that creatures capable of joint attention stand in a unique perceptual and epistemic relation to their surroundings. They operate in an environment that they, through their communication with their fellow perceivers, help constitute. Got it? And interestingly enough, it's not too dissimilar from the kind of sociology that I engage in called ethnomethodology. And so we likewise study how people constitute shared meaning and shared worlds through their uh, exhibited uh, physical practices and their socially organized interactions. And so there was a lot for us to uncover on package about how we or whether we're able to achieve these shared experiences and joint orientation and attention to this common world. I don't want to spoil the ending of the book for you, uh, so I won't describe it any further because I, I, I don't want to spoil how it ends. But let's just say that it does involve how does a bat know it's a bat. I know that's a question people have always asked themselves, and it's something that we tackle directly early on in the podcast. So you definitely don't want to miss that conversation. And Don, if you're listening, I hope you eventually discovered the joys of Jimi Hendrix. Oh, there we go. Well, I 
appreciate this you doing this again, especially since you know, don't know what this really is. No, I have no idea. <laughs> this is where I thought you'd be perfect. When I ask people, how do, you de- how do you define a customer? They can do that. What's a user? They can define that. What's an employee? They can define that. If I say to people, how do you define what is an experience? <laughs> right. They, they just kind of look at me and freeze and they go, what? Uh, I don't know. I'm like, well, it's part of the word. You know, user experience, customer experience, employee experience, patient experience. <laughs> What's an experience? How do you define that? Mm-hmm. And they literally have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so I was looking for somebody to talk about what is an experience and how do people have shared experiences? And I said, I know a guy. <laughs> and that guy is just <laughs> in the next building over for me. But right now he's actually in London. But the Axel's the guy. He, he, this is what he does. He studies, I think, he talks about experiences and what are experiences and how people have shared and joint experiences, right? Yeah, I, particularly the joint part. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, so what is that? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So are we, is this the interview ready? Or is this, are we Yeah, still? no, we're, yeah, we're, 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 yeah, we're, okay. we're on it right All now. Right. Yes, is it. Okay. Okay. So, well, the first, you know, the first thing to note is that philosophers can't tell you, I don't think, what an experience is. Um, they try, of course, you know, to give definitions because we want to be precise. Um, but I think it's widely agreed that, you know, um, there isn't any definition of what an experience is. Um, that would be universally acceptable to everybody. Um, it seems that you know this is such a fundamental aspect of um, the human condition um, and of the condition of creatures like us, in the sense that you know other creatures may have you know have experiences too. Probably, um, it's it's such a fundamental aspect of who we are that we have experiences that it seems to defy you know, our conceptual, conceptual apparatus. It seems to, you know, sort of um, be more fundamental than, you know, the concepts um, that we can use to describe what's going on when um, we have an experience. So um, I can perhaps, you know, it would be useful um, if, if I just began um, briefly by, you know, saying just two things um, about, you know, how you might think about um, uh, an experience quite generally from a philosophical uh, perspective, but you know, I'm not going to make it horribly complicated. Does that sound all right? Is it, is it possible to make something in philosophy not horribly complicated? Uh, no, uh, it's in the nature of the field that, you know, as soon right. as we touch it, as soon as we touch it, you know, horribly long words, you know, from the Greek creep in, and that's just who we are. You know, we, we like to do that. It makes us seem bright, um, and uh, that's part of the fun of it. <laughs> well, and I, and, I, and I don't know if, if philosophy has this, but at least in sociology, one of the reasons that people do not like us is that we're very good at pointing out what's wrong with something, mm-hmm. but not very good at actually providing recommendations of how to fix it. So oh, absolutely. Like, we'll be someplace and we'll say, well, that's, that, that's, that's horribly unjust for these following reasons, and then like walk away. Yep, that's right. That sounds perfect. That's, that's you know, I, I think we're right on board with that. Absolutely, yeah. So philosophers do that too? Oh yeah, philosophers definitely do that. You know, so oh. especially analytic philosophers. You know, so broadly, um, philosophers in the Anglo-American tradition, and I work in that tradition, and we're really good at, you know, sort of deconstructing things, and, you know, sort of analyzing concepts, um, but then, you know, building them up, I, I think, you know, is, is a lot harder um, into something, you know, positive. Um, anyway, so what's an experience? Um, so here's, here's, you know, what a very famous and I think excellent um, a philosopher called Thomas Nagel, um, who's still alive, um, teaches at NYU, um, asks in that respect. He, in a famous paper um, that I can recommend to everybody who's interested in the foundations, in the foundations of, you know, the question what an experience is, uh, the paper is called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Um, a bat. A bat, yeah, bat. Right, yeah, sure. It's the accent of the animal. No, no, no. Um, I, it's, it's the context, Axel. I mean, it's what you, you have this big buildup of a, a famous, very famous philosopher, and it's what is it like to be a bat? Bat, yes, that's right. right. And um, so he, he, he asks himself um, whether you know, we can ever understand um, what um, the experience of a bat would be like. Um, 
and um, he comes to the conclusion um, that um, we can't um, because um, in order to know that, um, we'd have to be a bat. Um, so we would have to be a creature that, you know, can fly, that spends, you know, its uh, days hung up upside down, that uh, navigates its surroundings by um, echolocation, right? So that, you know, sort of sends out um, sound waves and, you know, then is informed by um, the reflection of these sound waves um, of solid objects in its environment. Um, and this is something that, you know, we simply um, cannot, cannot imagine, right? Um, so um, this is interesting um, in our context, um, because um, it tells you something crucially important about um, the nature of an experience. An experience, uh, you might say, is a way in which the world or an aspect of the world is presented to you from a particular standpoint, right? Um, okay. Where the standpoint, you know, um, in the simplest, most trivial um, sense is um, a spatial standpoint. So, you know, if you and I are stood next to each other and, you know, we look opposite each other and we look at, you know, an apple that's placed in between us, then um, we're going to have different experiences of the apple um, because the thing looks different from um, these um, very, from, from these distinct perspectives. Um, but then also, of course, you know, it's informed by um, the kind of um, sensory apparatus that's at your disposal, right? Um, it's, you know, the, 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 how you and I perceive the apple is going to be in relevant ways, you know, um, similar um, because, you know, we, we're, we're both members of the same species, but it's going to be radically different um, between, you know, you and the bat. Um, so first, you know, um, first, you know, take home lesson is um, that, you know, experience happens when a creature, due to its sensory um, apparatus, is in a position to um, take in a presentation of the world from a, perspe a particular perspective. Can I, right? ask, can I ask a question? Please, yeah. Awesome. Well, I, yeah, I'm not, I have a PhD in sociology. I'm kind of short on the philosophy piece. I did have one class one time in philosophy and um, my, the only thing I remember from it as a freshman was my instructor was protesting against the filet of fish sandwich in front of the McDonald's. <laughs> mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's like, you know, not quite batness, but it's, that's my frame of reference. But, you know, it, it's an interesting perspective in that, well, two things come to mind. One is irrespective of our individual orientations uh, towards the apple, the apple in and of itself has an apple-ness yeah. Right, there is a quality to it in and of itself that we are trying to orient to and appreciate given our relative sensory ability to do so. But mm -hmm. there's still like this apple thing there that's mm -hmm. sitting in between us, uh, that we're trying to get at, you know, trying to get at. The other thing is, how do we, and this actually goes to a lot of customer experience, user experience, how do we, how do we try to accurately measure if that's even possible what someone's experience was if we have not had it ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, so, um, response to the first point, um, yes, absolutely. Um, and then you can have an incredibly long and protracted and um, complicated discussion as to whether, you know, the quality of the apple um, sits with the apple itself, um, right. or whether, you know, it sits with the way you are able to take in the information that the apple emits um, due to, you know, the way your senses work. Um, and so then, you know, that leads you, that leads you into, into two, you know, sort of series of perception where on the one hand, you know, the, the, the qualitative appleness resides with the object itself. Um, and so it's how the world is that at the end of the day informs what your experience is like. And then, you know, a rival theory that says, no, well, really, you know, sort of what, uh, what determines experience um, is the workings of the mind brain um, and, you know, what an experience is and how you single out a particular experience as what it is has only secondarily to, to do with um, the world that, if all goes well and you're not hallucinating, causes it, um, but with, you know, how your mind brain um, is set up and, and, and what it does, right? So then, you know, sort of there is that whole metaphysical uh, question. <clears throat> I don't know how relevant that is um, to 
um, well, actually, you know, sort of, uh, it is probably relevant yeah. to, to, you know, what, 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 what you are thinking about. I, I just um, like the term mind brain. <laughs> I, I just like that. For, I've never used that term before, mind brain. Yeah. And is that, is that a particular term that, you get, that, that philosophers tend to use when they're talking about this material? Um, so I, I, I use it um, because, because, you know, um, uh, you can have a, another endless um, discussion about, you know, what the relation is between mental events um, and the brain events that, you know, they are presumably connected with in right. some way or, you know, it's, 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 or perhaps that caused them. Um, and um, uh, that's something that philosophers can get terribly hung up about. Um, but neuroscientists and psychologists um, don't seem to get so hung up with that question. And um, so in discussions where that question doesn't um, matter so much, I like to use the term mind brain because it sort of sidesteps that massive debate. Um, you know, um, yes, you know, there's the brain and, and, and somehow, you know, sort of that, that is, that is uh, intrinsically connected to the mind. And if you, if you mush the two together, then you sort of get round this question, okay, so how does the relation between the two actually work? Because that's probably not what we want to talk about right now. Well, we might. Got, I mean, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And you still haven't gotten to like the second thing yet about, you know, no, the measurements. But, yeah, but I think that this, this point is interesting. One of the things I've, I've talked with is I've, I've observed and, and, and talked to art instructors, mm -hmm. because art instructors teach their students how to see, right? How to you know, often if it's representational kind of art, the idea is how do you see what's there in front of you? And one of the points that they'll often make is don't let your brain get in the way of what you're seeing. Yeah. And, and it's this idea of like, if you're trying to draw a foot, um, you're not trying to draw a foot, you're trying to draw that foot and not to process with your brain what a foot should look like, but to see what it is that you're, that you're observing at that time and take that more directly to your hand, yeah. you know, given that you're the pencil or chalk or, you know, charcoal or whatever paint so that you can capture it more accurately. And I, I think that does actually get to the measurement piece yeah. because it's this idea of, you know, how many steps away from the concrete realness of the object that we're experiencing can we get before it becomes so abstracted as the, the representation, whether it be a painting or a number becomes meaningless. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so how, yes, um, excellent, interesting. Um, how do you measure experiences? Um, I think, you know, one school of thought would simply say um, you can't measure experiences um, because um, by their very nature, um, experiences are something um, that is what you might call subjective. Um, they are tailored to particular subjects, particular perceivers, particular creatures, and um, no two experiences are ever going to be exactly alike right so even if you and i you know go and uh, we go to you know um together to a concert um of a band that we both very like very much like and are both familiar with and um you know so so we're both going to um hear those guys on stage and we're going to see the same thing but nevertheless you might suppose that you know our experiences are going to be quite different um they're going to be dependent on whether you're short-sighted or not or whether you know i don't hear very well they're going to be dependent on right. what we associate with you know these artists um what we've what we've experienced in the past um what our daily mood is and so forth and so on right so you can't you you can be you know very um bloody mind bloody minded about this um and you can say um look you know there's, there's just nothing objective in terms of measurement I can say about um, experiences. Um, on the other hand, you can be extremely objectivist um, and you can, you know, sort of try to um, break down um, experiences um, into brain activities. And then, you know, of course, brain activities, you know, are something that we can measure. And then, you know, sort of you might take, you know, whatever, you know, brain events you can, you can you know, measure at the time at which the, the experience is um, going on. You can take that to be, you know, some sort of objective uh, expression, uh, measured expression of, um, of the experience, right? So these are the two sort of extreme 
extremes. Um, I would say that neither of them, you know, um, on their own is very useful um, or, or even, you know, uh, truthful, right? Um, because, um, you know, as far as the, the subjective argument goes, um, well, you know, sort of, and now we're beginning to get to the shared bit. Well, it seems that, you know, we can compare our experiences and we can, right. you know, sort of talk about our experiences knowing that it's the same thing that we have experienced. And, you know, that wouldn't be possible if each of us were just living in our own experiential bubble out of which we can't break out. Right. right. So, you know, so, so, so the, the purely the full on subjectivist view doesn't seem to be right. Um, a, a, an attempt to um, to break down experience into um, measurable brain events uh, also doesn't seem to be, for my money at least, other people see this differently, um, it doesn't seem to be very promising um, because you sort of lose out on what's essential, you know, sort of what it is that you want to measure. All of a sudden you're talking about brainwaves, right? And that in itself has nothing to do with what it is that you're interested in. No, right? nor, is, nor is that very practical if you're trying to understand how someone is experiencing um, the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. To, it's to, not measure, to measure their brainwaves might be uh, possible. I mean, there's technology you could possibly do that, yeah, but uh, is that very practical or scalable right. would be right. the question. Well, right, that's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, sort of, so how, do you, so how do you measure it? I mean, you know, presumably, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in, you know, how you do this um, for commercial purposes, but, you know, sort of I, I would imagine that, um, well, you know, how do we compare experiences? Um, I think we do sort of two things, you know. So the first of all, we describe, you know, what the experience is like, right? Um, experiences seem to have um, this crucial characteristic that they are like something. That's, that's Tom, Tom Nagel's um, phrase. Um, what is it like to be about? So that suggests that, you know, experiences, um, at least those that we can talk about, are somehow comparable, you know, to other experiences and, you know, experiences perhaps that, are, that have been had by, by other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, 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 you know, description, pure, you know, phenomenology, description is, is one way. And then the other, the other thing is, of course, to, um, you know, um, to, to, to look at, you know, what there is, um, what it is that, you know, was experienced um, in common by everybody who was there. Right. And then, you know, match that against, you know, the different descriptions that people have given. And uh, that gives you some sort of measurement, I think, of, you know, what's in common and what is individual to each subject. Yeah, yeah that's, that actually becomes kind of interesting. Because I'm thinking about, you know, in the spaces of, you know, for instance, customer experience or student experience, a world that we are familiar with and will have to become more familiar with in the near future. As, as, as things are going in terms of focuses of universities on students in particular kinds of ways, you know, it's not enough to say, you know, how did you like this class in the aggregate per se? You might say something like, what was this experience of this class like? I mean, is there this kind of visualization metaphor uh, opportunity for people to express it, to draw that comparison and connection? And, and also, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about you know, is it, you know, if you're breaking down classes, you know, like, like a student evaluation of teaching as an experience measure, which it's not, but let's say it was for a second, you know, analyzing it, trying to understand it in terms of shared time experiences, like, you know, on this particular day at this particular time was experienced in this kind of way. And then also looking at it from various, you know, relevant categories that might, that might influence that overall um, evaluation of what the experience was like. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, it always strikes me in these questionnaires, you know, I always pity our poor students or consumers, you know, and I pity myself when I am one, when I have to, you know, um, fill in a standard questionnaire of this kind. Um, because it typically uh, never talks about or gives, you know, the, the, the person who's being asked um, the opportunity to actually think about the nature of the experience itself, but straightforwardly, immediately asks for an evaluation. So, you know, sort of it's simply taken as a given that here's the experience in, you know, the, in, the, in the memory of um, the, the person in question, and now you're going to tell us, in essence, whether you liked it or not, and what was good and what was bad about it, right? And I always think... Um, 
it goes back to what you said earlier about um, about the artists. Um, it, that's 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 hopelessly overburdening um, the the subject because as anybody who has you know say I I, I was an art history minor and um, in college and um, one of the things we learned there was to um, actually come to be aware of what our experience of an artwork was simply by having to sit there and describe it. You know, mm. not do you like this or do you dislike this, but gotcha. what, what is going on here? Look at the thing, describe it, describe it to me. And that turns out to, to amazing sort of learning, learning effect there. Um, that turns out to be fiendishly difficult. Like go to go to go to you know a, a, a museum and, and 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 pick out your favorite painting, um, you know not an abstract one but but one you know um, in which lots is going on. Um, I don't know some Rembrandt, Rubens, whatever, and and, right. and 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 try to describe it, and you'll you'll find that this is actually really hard to do. And so um, the first thing I think um, um, you know would be um, to devise a way of getting your um your your subjects your your individuals um to describe what the experience actually was right and i think that would be not easy to to produce um but i'm sure it can be done and i think that would be a, a, a really huge step forward right um yeah then i'm going to say another thing but no i, I think we you know one of the things I do want to bring back with the apple metaphor is that, and now this is something I talk about quite a bit when I'm talking to companies or talking in class about it. And I just talked about it today quite a bit is it's, you know, it's not just and then the painting is a little bit different because the painting is not necessarily interacting with you. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't go to the painting and ask what the experience was like, but in a, a situation of a class or mm -hmm. a sales encounter or um, a, going to the doctor, you can certainly ask, the physician, the salesperson, the professor, the teacher, whomever, what their experience was like. And, but usually we're not. I mean, it's, they're starting to, there's, there's organizations who are doing it more, but you know, there's student evaluations of teaching, but there's not professor evaluations of classes. I mean, there's grades, but it's not quite getting at the same thing. That's a performative mm -hmm. um, evaluation versus an experiential evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, so, um, right. So, so, you know, the, the thing, the thing, one thing about experience is also something that philosophers like to like to talk about is um, it's not, you know, when we, when we naively sort of think about experiences and I think what, you know, the designers of these questionnaires typically think is that um, <clears throat> when you have an experience, then the experience is fully before your mind consciously reflectively accessible you know in all of its details all of the time and that's simply false that's not how our minds actually work um you know there's 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 famous studies in in psychology which you know um many of our listeners um will be familiar with um where you know it is tested how much um a viewer's focus on a particular aspect of an experience blocks out what else is going on in, you know, the film that they have been shown, right? right. Um, and so there's this, there's this, you know, sort of famous case where um, people are shown um, a, a, a scene where people are playing, where, you know, um, players have basketballs. And yes, I knew you were going to say the basketball one. And then, and then, you know, there's, 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 there's somebody in a massive gorilla outfit walking through the court. And then if you ask, ask, ask afterwards, you know, who noticed, you know, what was going on there, most people actually don't, right? Um, so, 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 you know, what's present, what's present to you isn't immediately recallable by consciousness. Some stuff just isn't. Presumably no amount of prodding, you know, sort of will bring out the gorilla. But other aspects, you know, of the experience will be accessible once you sort of sit down and think about what actually went on, right? So it's a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of scale. It's like, you know, sort of, here's what's immediately um, conscious um, before your mind. Presumably that's those aspects of the experience that you focus on, right? What's, what's, you know, what you attend to. And then, you know, it's sort of a grayscale that's to, into what's less um, accessible to consciousness. 
and you know towards what's not accessible to reflective consciousness at all even though you took it in sensorily right and uh right so so when you get like and you must i don't know if you're like me um you don't have an accent at least we don't have the same accent i walk around annoyed a lot because i notice a lot of things and I notice things that you know most other people might not get upset about because I do this kind of work. It, it it annoys me immediately, and I can't stop thinking about it. So when when you get an email back from somebody from some service you got or some business you interacted with, and it says on a scale of one to ten, would, you know, how how likely are you to recommend our company to your uh, your friends and 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 family? And that's 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 taken as a measure of experience. Do you? Do you instantly want to yell and scream and pull your hair out and write emails to people to tell them that that's not accurate? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Right. Yeah, right, me too. Yeah. What do you do with, do you write the emails to the people? Have you ever done that? <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, Gary, look, I'm a, I'm a professor at a university and, uh, you know, these people have quite a lot on their plates typically. And uh, so they typically don't have time um, to, you know, sort of compose these emails, as I'm sure you can sort of uh, relate. <laughs> what would you, what would, what would you, if you could, if you could, if you're there listening right now, I mean, what is your, like, I mean, not just, you know, you know, offhand critique, but what would be like, what's your, when you look at these things, you go, you know what, that's not getting it. That's not getting at what is there to be understood. What would that kind of email say? Like, what, what would you want to critique or draw attention to about that kind of approach? So give me, give me, make the example a bit more precise. So, think. you know, Axel goes and gets his tires. He gets brand new tires mm -hmm. um, on a car. I don't know if you have a car, let's say you have a bike, doesn't matter, they're tires. And you come back home and you get an email and it says, thank you for your business. We really appreciate your patronage to our organization to better serve you. We'd like to understand how, you know, how much you enjoyed your experience with us. Um, please provide your feedback to the following question on a scale of one to 10. How likely are you to recommend our company um, and its service to your friends and family? One being not likely to recommend at all, 10 being very likely to recommend. And that's, mm -hmm. and that's a measure, by the way, of customer experience that people talk about quite a bit. This is a measure, a representation right. of customer experience. Yeah, um, so, you know, for starters, I'd say, look, you know, there's about 15, you know, overlooked variables in there um, from, you know, the, the nature of the experience to, you know, ultimately my recommendation um, of that shop to somebody or not. Um, because, um, it first of all, you know, sort of, um, it doesn't follow from the nature of my experience that I necessarily immediately, you know, recommend it or not. You know, I might, I might like this, you know, experience for reasons that, you know, make it completely unsuitable um, for, you know, sort of recommending it. I perhaps I like the graphic design, the way, you know, the, the I don't know, the graphic design of the shop logo. Perhaps, you know, sort of I had a really nice chat with, you know, sort of the person at the till or something like that, you know, um, is, 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 the, is, is, is the start. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it just conflates, you know, sort of the fact value distinction, um, you know, the, the distinction between what went on there and, you know, then my evaluation, my reaction to what went on there, right, um, is I think, you know, what... Um, yeah, what, 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 what I would say, you, you, you got that wrong. Um, but, but also, I mean, you know, th th this is probably not, not relevant to, you know, sort of I object um, to being asked all of the time, you know, sort of uh, what's your evaluation of this, that and the other, um, uh, because uh, it's, you know, in order to do this qualifiedly, I'd, I'd, have, to, I'd have to, you know, invest much more time than, than I have and also, you know, care much more than I do about in most cases. Right. Well, I, I think you're, you think, I definitely think you're not alone. And also something you just said there makes me, made me think about if we're, if we are um, constantly asked about individual elements of our day in an evaluative capacity, does that create this sense that they're, they're disconnected and separate and not one longer stream of events that culminate in a broader set of experience, right? So, I mean, what you experience at the store is not just what happened at the store, it's also what happened before you got to the store. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, some, some ways to talk about journey mapping. And it's also what kind of mood you're in that day. If you taught a class in the morning and went really well, mm -hmm. and then you know you have, you know, in a fun event in the evening, 
all of those things interact with one another, even though they might not be directly related to each other. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's right. So, you know, sort of one of the, one of the fascinating things to observe from a philosophical perspective about experiences is that our, and this is something that's not, you know, that's not Yusalid, um, you know, William James observed this um, over 100 years ago, um, that our, mental, our conscious experiential mental life does not come in chunks. You know, it does not come as, you know, here's experience A, which is followed by experience B, which is followed by experience C. Um, conscious experience is a stream. You know, it goes on throughout your waking life. And, you know, whatever um, division we impose, how, how you know, sort of we, we pick out chunks of it in order to conceptualize them and talk about them and evaluate them if we, if we do, um, that's, 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 that's in a way uh, informed by outside factors, you know, it's, it's not informed by the experience itself, but what we bring to it um, from the point of view of our own purposes and interests, right? Um, right. And it's, it's actually, you know, sort of really fascinating because, um, because um, it, 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 it brings up, you know, this, this philosophically really tricky question of um, how do, does this stream of experience, you know, sort of persist in time if by itself it doesn't come in chunks, right? Um, you know, what's, what, what sort of time is going on there? Yeah? And, uh, right. Yeah. So, but you know, and if 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 that's a question, and if that's if that's a problem, then um, that you know brings back with a vengeance um, what you know we talked about earlier on um, this question of well, you know, sort of can we ever be talking about um, the 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 same thing if you know what we call a particular experience is really just something out of our general stream of consciousness that we have picked out, you know, due to factors that are themselves not part of the experience, right? And so, you know, so you've got, if you try to, you know, work this out, so you've got, you know, sort of your stream of consciousness and I've got mine. Um, and then, you know, sort of we both want to talk about, you know, sort of a moment in time when, you know, sort of um, we, that, that defines something for us both, say, you know, that concept we talked about earlier. And, and then it can, you know, very quickly begin to seem that really, you know, sort of whatever we think we're sharing here isn't really shared because nothing can be shared because, you know, we're just talking about our bits of our, you know, respective uh, dream, uh, streams of consciousnesses, right? Um, so that's why then, you know, this other element that we talked about earlier becomes so important in order, in order to avoid that conclusion, which isn't useful, but also, you know, doesn't, that just doesn't seem promising or plausible. Um, the things, you know, we have to take it that there is something that is being experienced and that thing is independent of our mental operation. Right. Uh, then the question is, you know, how can we share that? And that's something that I work on. Yeah, is that was that what you were working on in, in your, your recent book, The Shared World? Yeah, right. Um, so in you know in, in this book I um investigate um a phenomenon um that is called joint attention. Um and joint attention is um a concept that um psychologists, initially developmental psychologists, um introduced. And it's something that is of key importance to creatures like us. Um, humans begin uh, towards the end of their first year of life to um, point out and socially reference objects to others, um, you know, typically their caregivers. So at the, you know, the, the one right. year old um, uh, infant will begin to look at the thing, point it out, somehow react and then look at mum to see, you know, whether she's looking at the thing also, whether she takes notice, whether she's somehow affected by the reaction um, that the, the infant displays towards the thing, whether she takes it up, or whether she says, no, 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 that's not the, the, the right way, you know. Um, and, and so, so uh, you know, what we, what, what we um, begin to do early on in life and what seems to be at the heart of our sociality is a way of relating about, you know, objects in the shared environment with others, right? And that's incredibly important to us because, sure. because that's how we learn from each other. That's how we can, you know, sort of how, how the child learns 
from the mum, look, there's this thing, that's nice, have it or steer away from it, you know, don't touch this, right? Um, so so, um, so, so um, this matters deeply. Um, and and, and um, people who can't do this very well, you know, people with autism um, have difficulties in, um, in joint attention, um, they suffer for it. You know, there's certain things that they then have um, difficulties doing um, uh, later, later in life. Um, and so, so that's, that's, you know, that, that's, it's, it's not only important um, for, um, for the development um, of humans, it's something that we crucially rely on throughout, you know, our, our lives. Um, if you and I, you know, um, uh, manipulate some object together, so, you know, I've got a blanket and you help me, you know, sort of fold it, right? Then, you know, we, we're kind of jointly attending to the thing and we have to do that in order to cooperate, to co coordinate our movements and, and cooperate. Right. Yeah, and I would say it's that's in from a sociological perspective. It's not just the the, the joint, um, the joint shared reference to a particular object, but to a particular object as a a certain kind of social object mm -hmm. that, in and of itself, in that context, conveys certain use use cases. Right. So with the blanket, you know, it's something that we in this context of going to bed at night, where I'm tucking you, know, quote unquote, tucking you in as a composite act you know, signifies certain kinds of, um, you know, behaviors that taken together form this gestalt of a social act of tucking you in, that this blanket is something that in that context versus if I'm playing peekaboo in another context. So we're both shared, we both have, you know, joint attention to the same object in the same way, but in that context, which we also socially recognize together at the same time. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's definitely right. You know, there's something deeply, you know, social, um, to this, um, and the question, you know, philosophically, there's a, this is really weird. So, you know, this is something that, you know, psych as I said, psychologists discovered um, and conceptualized, um, and um, philosophers have only taken on, particularly analytic philosophers, uh, relatively recently, because it doesn't neatly fit. I mean, sociologists, you know, presumably wouldn't have a big problem with this, um, but um, the, the traditional analytic philosopher really, you know, is a hard-nosed, hardcore individualist. So here am I with my mind brain, and then there's the world of objects, and how do I, and then, you know, all sorts of questions arise, how do I come to think about these objects, how do I come to, to, to pick them out amongst other objects, um, how do I come to act on them, and as an afterthought, a distant afterthought, Oh, and then there's also other people, and how do they come into the story, right? That's sort of a traditional, you know, right. analytic philosophical kind of stance. Um, but if joint attention is as important um, as I think, and, you know, psychologists, uh, developmental psychologists think, and, you know, sociologists presumably would think, then that traditional stance, this individualist stance, um, must be mistaken. Right. Um, so somehow it's, you know, somehow our minds operate in such a way that the interaction with other people is a formative aspect of what the mind amounts to, you know, um, as a whole. Right. Um, so it's not that, you know, sort of here's my mind and it's directed at that object and then here's your mind and it's directed at, you know, perhaps the same object. And then somehow, somehow we, you know, relate these experiences somehow the sharedness the social aspect enters the nature of the of the experience and then you know the massive question is how is that possible if experiences are produced by individual brains right, right. and and so that's that's a really deep puzzle and you know that's at the end of the day what that book is about and so you know how how does a guy like you with this ranging philosophical knowledge um, end up working at, you know, Boston Consulting Group? <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a pertinent question here because, um, you know, um, this, is, this, is the, um, this is the rap that we get as social scientists often is that's really interesting or maybe it's not, but let's assume it's interesting for a second. So what, like, what can you do with that, right? This is, this is what we always have to deal with. This is what I call the open house problem at our school when we're sitting there at the sociology table, at the philosophy table, and mm -hmm. someone comes up and says, well, what does this have to do with business? And so I see applications of this, what you just described, right? This is how my mind works. You know, how does a person like you with this far ranging philosophical knowledge and perspective, you know, engage 
as a employee or as a managerial consultant at the Boston Consulting. But I don't, but I don't do that anymore, right? So the first thing, you know, the first thing that, that needs to be stressed is that I did this um, before, you know, I became a full-fledged academic, right? So I was a, I was a management consultant after my PhD, um, and then I did a little bit of consulting on the side, on the side in the early stages of my career. Um, but I've since, um, I haven't done this in a while, right? So that's the first thing that needs to be pointed out. Um, nevertheless, it's 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 an interesting question. Um, so I think there's two possible answers, um, you know, um, that you can give here. Um, Answer number one is, well, you know, this massively depends on the sort of project um, that you are working on. Um, so the kinds of, you know, projects that, you know, you um, described um, earlier, so, you know, the creation of particular kinds of consumer experiences. It's not difficult to see how, you know, having a grip on the foundational questions, some of which we've talked about today, um, how how that gives you a particular take on you know concrete um, questions um, and problems um, that arise you know in 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 in, in commercial project. Um, however, you know that that only applies to quite a limited you know sort of subset um, of, um, of 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 commercial um, applications. Um, uh, most of, you know, you, you, when, when you're doing consulting work, I mean, you know, sort of you might, you might be doing, um, you know, some sort of post-merger integration of, you know, a merchant bank or something like that. Um, and, then, and then presumably, you know, sort of what you know about the social aspect of the mind um, is much less directly, directly, um, immediately, obviously relevant to what you're going to do. Um, however, um, what, what, you know, I think um, was useful for me even in those projects, and I had um, projects of that kind, um, you can always, in a way that other people might not be able to, step back. You can step right. back and, and try to describe, work out the, the, what is going on from a sort of objective point of view. Like, you right. know, sort of uh, using the kinds of concepts that you bring to bear. And um, that can be immensely helpful um, because other people who might be much better, have much, have, might have a much deeper business expertise than you do, uh, may not be able to do that. And so by stepping back and saying, look, here's a description of what's going on. What do you do with that? And that has, in my, when I was doing this, you know, that, that did result in sort of aha moments. Right. I would never have, to, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. you go. No, I think it's great. I, I just, to, to tie in your art history background um, a little bit, there is, there is a utility and there is value in working from a very limited palette. If one was going, you know, to paint and almost like, you know, you know, some Dutch style or something like that, where you have a very finite number of colors that you're working with and mixing. At the same time, by being able to have a broader palette, right, a broader toolkit, you know, a, a broader range of thinking in which you're able to integrate more varied sets of knowledge and wait for it experiences, you can actually create, you know, in many ways, deeper kind of tones and depictions, or in this instance, understandings and perspectives based on that broader sense. And so the, my upshot of that is, you know, at the one hand, you know, a lot of the conversation might seem overwrought for some simple kind of, you know, did, were you happy with the service or not, right? On the other hand, by engaging in these larger discussions, I think it does lead to, well, how, you know, given the complexities of what you're sharing, what other ways could we go about or might we envision trying to get at the nature of the experiences people are having that get us closer to um, the actual lived experience that they, that they had yeah. in that moment? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Because, 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 you know, experience is always and by nature endlessly, infinitely complex and subtle, right? Um, so, you know, experience, just, I don't know what you're just looking at in your office, but, you know, suppose you are and, you know, your office has, has simply got, you know, a few books and a bookshelf and a table and a few chairs and then, um, and then a carpet and, and walls and a window. 
And you can, this relatively simple experience, you can spend the rest of your life describing if you set your mind to it, right? right. Um, because because it's, it's infinite, right? Um, so, 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 you know, sort of one incredibly important thing to see, I think, in, for all um, workers who somehow have to do with experience is that there is no such thing as, you know, the experience, goes back to your questionnaire question as well, there is no such thing as the experience um, that you could describe, analyze, evaluate, and so forth and so on. Your description of your experience is always going to be a function of the interests and values and orientations and concepts that you have brought into the investigation. Right, and uh, and uh, to 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 forget about that, I think um, it devalues everything you could possibly do, um, you know, in, in when working with with experience or designing them. And what's one of my when I talk to my students about doing field notes, for instance, and they're like, "Well, what do I write down?" And I say to them, you know, to your point, I said, "Any field notes or any depiction of any setting are going to be necessarily incomplete." because you can't yeah. capture everything that's going on in its infinite detail, um, nor should you, because if you're trying to focus on the infinite detail of the carpet and the chairs and the desk and the lights and the decorations, you're gonna miss what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. And so it, there, you know, there's this idea of not just selective perception, going back to uh, what you described with the gorilla, those kinds of exercises, it's not, you know, every, all, of our select, all of our perception is selective, but it's also to be aware of how it's selective so that when we're engaging in these exercises, we don't, we don't get lulled into thinking that those patterns in our bias are actual representations for what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right, absolutely. And, and to have that critical perspective, understanding that these experiences that we're trying to capture in some kind of, you know, primitive, very primitive state right now, right? If you think about how primitive we're trying to do capturing of experiences, whether user, customer, patient, student, whatever, employee. Um, it's so primitive that we can't think that those representations are actual representations of the actual thing. That not to say that we're failing, but to think that there's a lot more possibly that we should be thinking about and engaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a trippy sort of, it's a, it's a I, I always just love the thought and I love you know I teach a class on the nature of consciousness sometimes at Bentley and you know questions of this nature obviously um come into the story because consciousness and experience are very closely related and um I just love um bringing home to our students um the fact that um we constantly you know we constantly live in an experiential world that is as a matter of that is necessarily um, impossible for us to ever fully describe, and yet it's fully there all of the time, and it has a big role to play in making us who we are. And I find that I find that you know a very beautiful thought um, because um, it 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 shows us how little you know how little control um, there ultimately is over you know what we describe and what we what we what we think we experience and how we communicate it right um right. it you know it, it it sort of it rams home the, the 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 fact and i think it is a fact that you know we move in a in a in an endless ocean of information you know that that sort of just swirls around us and um well you know we just pick bits and bobs of it out um but there's so much more and it all matters. And I always find that really beautiful. It does. And uh, before I let you go, I have a few other questions for you. Sure. Um, when you tell people what you do for a living, do you tell them that you're a philosopher? No. Um, oh. I, so uh, it de very much depends on the context. Um, right. If it's a long plane journey, I tell them um, I'm an accountant, um, but then, you know, in a, in a city <laughs> that they're not from. Um, so that, you know, so because, because what happens when I say I'm a philosopher, um, it, mostly, yes. mostly they, they confuse it with a psychotherapist. Um, and, and so whilst I'm not averse to listening to people's personal problem, if it's an eight hour journey, plane journey and you can't get out, you know, and it's not under your control. Um, so, uh, so, right, um, you know. That's, that's truth. And I'll, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you about one of my experiences I just had buying brake fluid, true story. 
I was buying brake fluid. Uh, it was late at night. I just wanted my brake fluid and go home. I made the rookie mistake, the fundamental error of I disclosed to the person who was selling me the brake fluid that I am a sociologist. Bad move. Because he then, he then proceeded to ask me the question, let me, well, this is how it always happens, right? Well, let me ask you this. And immediately you think, please don't ask me that. I don't want to know what that is, but I don't want to be asked that because it can't be good. Why is it that no one values marriage anymore? <laughs> right. And I was like, <laughs> I, just, you are. <laughs> I just, I just kind of want to buy the brake fluid. And then I, then I learned about how he, um, his wife cheated on him uh-huh. with a person that she used to date who she bankrupted. So this other guy was then going to ruin her marriage by cheating on her. Um, and then after she left her husband, who was selling me the brake fluid, um, he drew, he dumped her. So now they're getting divorced and he has to decide, you know, why, why is this guy not being punished more greatly for breaking up his marriage and back in Peru? That's not how things work. Right. Yeah. That's, a nice, I, little, that's a nice little problem set for sociologists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I, I said that's, uh, that sounds very difficult. Uh, can I have my, my brake fluid? Yeah. And I right. said, I, I, but of course, being a sociologist, I can't stop there. I said, well, actually, things didn't you, it's not like things used to be, things used to be so much better. And I said, well, actually, no, they weren't. No. That right. much better. But then luckily, someone else came into the store and I got my brake fluid and left. So, yes, I totally <laughs> co sign with this the danger of disclosing who you are as an academic because they might actually want to talk to you in ways that our students don't. Um, yeah, 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 I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, obviously, so I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, um, philosophers are so haughty that they think that no um, discussion about philosophical problems with anybody you know who hasn't got a phd in it um is completely pointless so i don't want to I no don't want to no not, a, not in, in buying fact, but not I, buying brake fluid and not on an eight-hour flight no exactly that's right that's right so you Boundaries. have to choose your you have to choose your audience wisely that's right yes absolutely and, and something you said i want to ask about you said something about like philosophers like to talk about when philosophers get together at the philosophy conferences what what do they i mean what's what i understand the traditional analytic philosophers are by themselves in the corner of the bar not yeah. talking to anybody because that's just how they roll yeah but like what do people hang out and talk about what do we hang into uh, hang on. so i i have to confess that um most of my friends personal friends so not people i'm professionally friendly with of course that happens too but most of my personal friends are not academics <laughs> right. and, and, uh, and um, that's because I think, I, you know, the, the, with the exception, so, you know, sort of, I, I, like, you know, so I've got one really good um, philosopher friend um, in, 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 in Boston and we go and, and, and hang out at, at bars, you know, a lot. And, um, you know, we, we, what do we talk about? We, we, there's always obviously sort of a bit of professional gossip involved, you know, sort of sure. published what and shared experiences, what, shared experience. That's right. There we go. Then of course, then of course, shared frustrations, shared, right. shared miseries. Um, but then, you know, we talk, we talk, I mean, we're both into, you know, sort of outside, outside pursuits and, um, and we end up talking a lot about that if we're not doing it. So for example, right. Um, but at, at philosophy conferences, uh, you know, my experience has been they tend to make for quite, uh, you know, um, they, they can make for quite sort of awkward social situations um, where, you know, you, you can't, I don't know, some people can talk about philosophy, you know, straight up difficult problems for 12 hours at a stretch, so through an entire conference day and then the conference dinner as well. Um, I, at some stage, I'm just worn out and right. I just want to talk about my garden or hiking, you know, in the Cotswolds or something. Um, and then I have to find people with whom I can do that. Um, but yeah, it can be a little bit awkward. So like, like, like as we discussed earlier, as people get annoyed with us for our profession, sometimes we also get annoyed with us for our profession sometimes. And sometimes, you know what? You don't want to study your own experience. You just want to let it be. Would that be yeah. accurate? Yes, absolutely. Well, there we go. I think that's a good. I think it's a good place. I think it's a good place to uh, to end. I want to thank. Thanks so much. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks to Professor of Philosophy Axel Seaman for helping me explore and understand 
the nature of shared experiences and frankly what does it mean to have an experience and thanks to everyone who has subscribed to experience by design podcast remember you can do so by going to experience x design all one word experience x design.com and just giving us your email you can also find past shows on our website as well and feel free to subscribe through stitcher google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify and our rss feed and we're looking at bringing experience by design podcast to other podcast outlets as well so stay tuned for that if you have any suggestions for future podcasts you can send them to feedback at experiencexdesign.com or if you just want to share feedback you can send it there as well we look forward to hearing from you what you think of our shows if you want to sponsor an episode even a month or even a year what the heck it's a holiday season you can get in touch with us at feedback at experience by design or experiencexdesign.com as well. If you like our podcast, want to donate, help us defray the cost of putting it on, you can do so through our glow.fm page, which is linked from our website. And remember, folks, are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Well, I have. So says Jimi Hendrix. Bye, everybody. <laughs>